Bass Ferruccio Fulanetto is backstage at Lyric. Boca Negra is a, is a masterpiece. Of course, there is a very demanding vocal part in it, and it's fundamental since we are in opera. But it's so beautiful to, to have beautiful music, beautiful singing, beautiful phrases, and acting. Welcome to another edition of Backstage at Lyric. This time we present an audio transcript of the Discovery Series session for Simone Bocanegra by Giuseppe Verdi. The Discovery Series consists of panel discussions with the singers, directors, and conductors from the Lyric Opera season. There's usually one session per opera, and they generally take place a few days prior to the opening of each production. For more information on the Discovery Series, including ticket information, visit lyricopera.org. And now we hand things over to this Discovery Series session featuring bass Ferruccio Forlanetto in conversation with lyric opera dramaturg Roger Pines. Gentlemen. It is increasingly rare these days to feel genuinely privileged in witnessing the work of a particular artist on stage. But everyone who heard our Baris Godunov last season and last night's opening of Simon Bocanegra realizes what a privilege it is to watch and listen to Ferruccio Furlanetto on stage. Once you've seen him in these two operas and in so many others, you have a hard time imagining the characters he's playing being acted and sung by any other performer. As with his Baris, um, Verdi's Fiesco is one of Mr. Furlanetto's signature roles. In this portrayal, he is operating at a level of vocal prowess and interpretive authority that is unique today and unsurpassed among bases of at least the past half century. The Met, Vienna, La Scala, Covent Garden, Berlin, and Madrid are among the houses where he has portrayed Fiesco, and you can see him on DVD in this role in the, the productions of the Vienna Staatsoper, La Scala, and Covent Garden. His performances in Verdi's leading bass roles have been hailed as definitive in Don Carlo, Attila, Nabucco, Ivespi Siciliani, Macbeth, Forza del Destino. The rest of his repertoire remains extraordinarily diverse. Consider that among his recent successes have been L'Italiana in Algeri of Rossini in Vienna, Massenet's Don Quixote in Madrid, Moscow, and St. Petersburg, Eugene Onegin of Tchaikovsky in Vienna and Salzburg, Faust at the Met in South Pacific at the Vienna Volksoper. When he sings Baris at the Bolshoi in Moscow about a month and a half from now, he will be the first Italian to have sung that role at that theater, the Bolshoi, and also at Saint, uh, the Mariinsky Theater in St. Petersburg. Also later this season, he will be in San Diego for a role that he has championed with great success in recent years, Thomas Beckett in Pizzetti's Murder in the Cathedral. He'll then head to the Vienna Staatsoper for a recital and to Covent Garden for his celebrated portrayals of Fiesco and King Philip II. Please join me in welcoming back to the Discovery Series a truly great artist, Ferruccio Furlanetto. We have not done Simon Bocanegra here in 17 years, so I think my handy-dandy 60-second synopsis might be in order. Ferruccio, I hope I... I mean, this is really a tough one to do in 60 seconds, but I will try. In 14th century Genoa, the corsair Simon Bocanegra is persuaded by his friend Paolo, chief of the plebeian party, to accept nomination as the city's new doge. 
Simone hopes that the position will make him an acceptable husband for Maria Fiesco, a young patrician woman who has borne him an illegitimate child. Maria dies, the child disappears. Jacopo Fiesco, Maria's father, despises Simone as as his daughter's seducer. When Simone becomes doge, Fiesco is exiled. 25 years later, Fiesco is living in Genoa under an assumed name and is the guardian of another young patrician woman, Amelia Grimaldi. Simone is astonished to discover that Amelia is his own long-lost daughter. Amelia rejects Paolo as a suitor. He attempts to abduct her, and Simone suspects him of the crime. Paolo poisons water that is drunk by Simone. The doge reconciles with Fiesco and blesses the union of Amelia and the man she loves, Gabriele Adorno, whom the dying Simone proclaims the new doge. Is that okay? There are other 400 episodes. There are 400. <laughs> it's a tough one. Um, do you remember the first time that you heard Simone Bocanegra? Did they sing? No, no, that you actually heard the piece. Well, uh, sang by others? No, I don't remember. Maybe, no, actually, no. All the production that I heard because I was in it. <laughs> so, so, do you find that Italians don't necessarily grow up with this piece the way they grow up with Traviata, Trovatore, Rigoletto? No, no, in Italy, in Italy it's played now since Abado did take it back. I was going to ask you about yeah, that. In the in 80s, early 80s, mm-hmm. I think. <clears throat> or even before with this magnificent production of uh, Giorgio Strella. In La Scala, correct? In La Scala, yeah. yes. And uh, ever since... It's an opera that it has been done more and more because it's one of the most refined and beautiful Verdi opera. What do you think? You, we had talked about that production the first time. We talked about Sima Bocanegra. So I'm curious um, what that production gave the piece. Because that's a production that you've done, correct? Didn't you do the last... Revival? The last three. Yeah. The last three performances of the Starella production has been done in Vienna when Abado was was there as a chief conductor and general artistic director. <clears throat> and after that, unfortunately, the production was dismantled and thrown away. I did also some other performances of it in Barcelona in the years before. And it's such a pity because... Uh, I don't see what would have been the problem, okay, to rebuild it and to repropose it as it happened. We were talking a few minutes ago. For instance, in 2004 in Rome, I did the Visconti Don Carlo, and it was totally rebuilt, but exactly in the way it was, and it was so beautiful. And they were were painted uh, scenery. And it it was was a production that was 50 years old. Absolutely, absolutely. And it was, it was also in Covent Garden, I remember. Sure. And uh, <clears throat> it's, I mean, if they did rebuild and they found the artisans able to paint properly the set as it was, why not do the same with, uh, with the Strela Boca Negra or, did, the, or the Macbeth? Macbeth did, was sensational as well. What did that production, though, contribute to the piece that made this sort of woke people up to what the possibilities of the piece really could be? I don't know. <clears throat> it's, it's, there are some mysteries in this profession that is very hard to explain <laughs> sometimes. 
I mean, a good historical production should be there forever. Uh, let's think about, for instance, the Zauberflöte in Salzburg by Jean-Pierre Ponel. Nobody will ever be able to do something better than that, like his Italian in Algeria, for instance. And uh, you will always find some artistic director that one day will throw away these masterpieces to make place to some ugly new productions, especially in these times. Um, I am so astonished by the beauty of this music in Simon Bocanegra. If you were speaking to... How many of you, when you come to the Lyric Opera production, which of course you all are going to do, how many of you will be hearing Simon Bocanegra for the first time? A lot of you. Okay. So, what I'm curious about is, if you were going to emphasize to a newcomer to Simon Bocanegra about the lyrical content, the lyrical beauty of this piece, because it really does equal Rigoletto e Trovatore Traviata in that respect. What passages, what scenes do you think you would mention just to make it clear to those, those people unfamiliar with the piece just well, how beautiful all, it is? First of all, it's important for uh, somebody who comes to Bocanegra for the first time not to expect Traviata or Rigoletto. Well, at least as far as what it's about. Well, yeah. first of all, because I heard a friend of mine told me that last night uh, two people next to him left him, left the, left the show because he said, well, it's not Rigoletto. That's so. a crime. No, no That's a crime. It's not, it's not Rigoletto, and uh, it's an old, it's a very belonging to his old age, so very, very refined, deeper, than, than before, we have less Zumpapa, and uh, and the characters are so well designed, and they are not just purely vocal. These are acting characters. Of course, there is a very demanding vocal part in it, and it's fundamental since we are in opera. But it's so beautiful to to have beautiful music beautiful singing, beautiful phrases, and acting. Then it's really a sensational form of theater that we don't have in many other opera where you just, if you dig a bit in some sensitive part of the character, that's it. I mean, uh, how you die, how you... Um, Boca Negra is a, is a masterpiece of course, you need to be prepared to that. If you, it was it was hard to digest this this story, this uh, story of last night of these people leaving because it wasn't Rigoletto because it's it's a waste. I'm so, I feel sorry for, for for them really because Rigoletto is sensational. Let's be clear. Is a sensational opera, a sensational piece. Uh, everything is absolutely uh, outstanding. But this has another respiro, has another dimension. The the characters are very much digged into their souls. Uh, I mean, I prefer it very much. I know you made a point of exploring a lot of historical background when you were preparing to sing Baris for the first time. 
it's possible to do that with Simón Bocanegra because Bocanegra actually lived. But did, did you see as much of a point in well, doing Bo- that? You know, Bocanegra is very is very much uh, romanced. I mean, the Do- Bocanegra of course existed, but he wasn't a pirate at all. And uh, he was coming, yes, from from the simple people, and he was probably the first democratically elected Doge in in the Republic of Genova. And uh, but there is a lot of romance in it. So, of course, uh, in those times there was uh, a social fight, as it comes out in the prologue. The aristocrats, of course, were leading normally the power. It was the first time that they had to give up. And Fiesco, for instance, had to lose all his wealth, run away, hide in the in the country, change name. It wasn't uh, it wasn't hard. It wasn't easy at all, of course, but. Um, I mean, it's very much uh, romanced, the piece. Well, although the real Bocanegra was poisoned, wasn't he? No, he wasn't oh, poisoned. And he wasn't apparently as human and as uh, intelligent as it comes out in That's this in piece. The opera. Um, clearly, a 25-year-old bass isn't ready for a role like Fiesco or like Boris, for that matter. When we talked last year, you mentioned to me how important you thought your background in Mozart had been in working your way up into the heavier repertoire. And I think that is incredibly important and something that young singers everywhere should absolutely be thinking about. So could you talk to us about how Mozart sort of sustained you vocally when you took on the heavier, Don Carlos, Simo Bocanegra, the other Verdi operas. I was, I was extremely lucky to, of course, when I, I started this profession, I mean, to, to approach the world of opera, uh, Bocanegra, Fiesco Aria was the first thing I ever learned for a competition or for an audition, I don't remember, audition. And, uh, but then, being young, and being in full adoration of Cesare Siepi, who was the greatest Giovanni and doing a lot of figaros, I, wa- I wanted to follow his tracks somehow. And so I, st- I started to approach and to sing more and more Mozart. Of course, I had here and there some excursion in other uh, repertoires, but basically for, I would say, 25 years, I sang mostly Mozart, which was the greatest gift I could receive because there is no other way to sing Mozart unless you use your natural vocality, what you received by your nature. Because otherwise, uh, if you start to cover, to create sounds, you will never be able to to play the recitatives and to become the character because the character is, is built through the recitatives mostly. And so the, the word must be clear, must be immediate. Everybody should understand in the audience without looking uh, the subtitles up there. And 25 years in doing this kind of work was so amazing. It was an extremely 
good medicine. Because when I reapproached the Verdi or then Boris and etc., the voice grew up physiologically with me through Mozart, and when I, became, I, I came back to Verdi, I was ready for the big step, and it was much easier, let's say, 25 years after than 20 years before, for instance. And even now, that I'm not exactly a, a teenager, <laughs> uh, roles like uh, Attila, like Hernani, this kind of hybrid where you have the, the aria purely for bass and the cabaletta purely for baritone, I can manage it much, much better than 20 years ago because I, I am owning my vocality in a much different and better way than then. You have a role in Simo Bocanegra that begins with the best-known music in the entire opera and probably the best-known of all bass arias written by Verdi, Il Acerato Spirito. So let me ask you, is it a blessing or is it a curse that you're starting your role off with this very dramatic recitative? And this but, it, but it happens in many other roles. Hernani Silva comes in with a boom, with the aria and the cabaleta, the famous uh, baritonal, baritonal cabaleta. And uh, Procida comes out and immediately sings Otto Palermo and cabaleta. So Fiesco, after all, is quite easy. <laughs> <laughs> you come out, you sing something that is purely written for bass with a beautiful intense recitative if you want but then you go immediately into the into the prayer which is very much cantabile and it's pretty easy i would say what in that aria is most important to you to communicate to your audience in terms of character everything because it is written no but it's written in this specific way i mean the very beginning you have the desperation of this father coming out of his palace. He just lost his daughter. He, of course, he, he knew that she had a little child and she disappeared. So, I mean, it's a very difficult situation and is full of rage and hate towards Bocanegra because the, he thinks that he is the cause of all this trouble. And... Uh, Immediately after this sudden description, there is a blasphemy. He is talking to the Madonna and saying, how could you allow this bastard to do so and so? And then immediately you repent. And <laughs> very, this is a bit funny. And he auto-absolves himself immediately. You say, okay, she, she forgives me, okay. <laughs> <laughs> because, because I... My my soul is destroyed by the by this situation, and then he goes into the prayer. Well, where he he gives a sort of farewell to the daughter, and uh, so I, I wouldn't say that there is a very specific moment where you should point out something. It's uh, there are phases that are all very very important if you want to. 
give the proper image. The big question is, do the directors that you do this opera with, do they allow you to do in that aria what you want? Or do, are they asking you for outrageous blocking and, and stuff that, that just the doesn't, time, that you don't the believe? The time in? of the outrageous thing is gone. I mean, I, I have a blacklist. <laughs> <laughs> I have a blacklist, and when they offer me a, a contract... Uh, <laughs> Nope. So uh, sometimes, I mean, three years ago I was caught in a, in a bad situation in a Macbeth in Paris with a disgusting production. Of course, we all have to go online immediately and find out all about it. Okay. It was a disgusting production, conducted in disgustingly also, directed hopefully and uh, with a good cast. And it was, uh, I trusted the, 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 the theater because in the past uh, I always did beautiful things there. When I signed the contract, the director wasn't yet decided. And then I found myself in a situation where, and this is the best aspect of this profession today, we signed contracts three, four, even five years before. And then you find yourself in a situation that you have only two possibilities. Go and lose everything. Lose, all, of course, the money. Lose one and a half, two months of your artistic life. Because at the last moment it will be extremely hard to, to replace an engagement like that. Or stay for the money and feeling like a prostitute. I stayed, <laughs> and I will never forgive who compelled me to do, to do so. And uh, it was one of the most depressing times ever. And uh, I mean, after that, the, my blacklist is a kind of Bible. <laughs> you, you also did, besides the Macbeth, you did an infamous uh, Bocanegra there, which I actually saw. And one thing that I remember... Three awful Bocanegras. Three awful Bocanegras. One oh. after the other. I mean, one worse than the other. The first one was stupid, dark, black, and probably did cost $500 in everything. <laughs> the second one, I was, <laughs> I was dressed like the General Custer. <laughs> And the third one is the one you saw, <laughs> Wait, uh, where I was a kind of Berlusconi. The, yeah. so. With, there was an enormous, there was an enormous poster. Yeah. Which just had you in a business suit and your name on it. It just said Fiesco in enormous letters, like a political. It was because poster. in that time we had elections in Italy, and uh, there was of course a big clash in the, uh, of the two parties. And, of course, they took advantage of this situation just to have... I mean, the political issue in Bocanegra is just that big. Just in the prologue for how much? 10 minutes, 15 minutes, that's it. Then it's a story of hate and love, and that's it. Politics was from the beginning to the end. I was a kind of uh, Berlusconi, and... Uh, and Boca Negra was 
at the beginning was kind of Che Guevara. It was if you remember, it was dressed like Che Guevara. It was poor, uh, Carlos Alvarez, right. and uh, <clears throat> it was dreadful. Really. Uh, do you remember? Do you remember Amelia having to sing like an act and a half of the opera in, just in, dressed in a bathrobe, which I thought was insane. No. <laughs> but but what about the scene where you were the prison? On, you were, you were on stage with the tenor, mm. and you were having to sort of paint his his face like brown, and he had to do his whole aria with his breath. No, no, I, no, I don't remember. This. I remember this. Maybe so was somebody. Stefano else. Secco. I remember the tenor. <laughs> no, no. It was well, the whole I mean, thing was insane. Yeah. Um, in the prologue, you have the first of your big confrontations with. Simone, and there is this incredible tension that exists between them. Is it just you, you're the seducer of my daughter, or is, is, or is there more to it than that? Oh, I want to punish him because, because of the death of the daughter and because he wants to know what happened to this little girl that disappeared. And Bocanica doesn't say a word, he's lying because he, only at the very end he will finally say what happened to the girl because and uh, so the hate is mounting and mounting and it's and then I mean all the crowd is coming here is coming on stage and saying you have been elected Dodger so it's even worse I mean it's the end of the power of, of aristocracy in Genoa and the beginning of a kind of uh, communist revolution for him so it's which means loss of wealth, loss of everything. And he has to run away with what he has. So can you describe what his position as a patrician in the city, what his status in the city they, would have been like? They were, they were uh, deciding life and death on everybody. I mean... Of course, the trade was in their hands, money was in their hands, I mean, everything, the power, wealth, money, and everything was in their hands, and the others were there. So it was a big, big, big change. By the end of the prologue, Simone has been proclaimed the new doge, and do you envision Fiesco just having to leave the city and just yeah, become sure. a fugitive I mean, of sorts? It's one of those moments when you have to take the right decision in a few seconds. Mm-hmm. Think about poor Shalyapin. Shalyapin, in, in the years of the Bolshevik Revolution, he, had, he was a god in Moscow and in Russia, and just because he was rich and wealthy and everything, he knew that they were after him, and he had to take a bag and run away. I mean, these are decisions that should be taken in a matter of seconds, because it could be the difference between life and death. And this is what is happening to to Fiesco. Now, the next time we see you, it's 25 years later, Mm And how do you like, by the way, um, how do you like to do your whole appearance in the, when, when you're aging 25 years? Um, what do you find works the best and is most, most well, effective? Well, if I, if I would be the, the director and the one who makes these kind of choices, I would, be, I would do a drastical change. 
because if when somebody goes away in disguise and he wants to to be unknown and nobody could remember or see him what do he would change everything so if he had a big beard away the beard and then in the years of course also the hairs maybe are going away and uh, I, I think there should be a big, big drastic difference between the prologue and after. I know 25 years are not so much. I mean, probably when you, we see him in the, in the prologue, maybe it's 40 maximum. And then at 65, okay, in, the, in that period at 65, you were a very old man. Uh, but it should be a big difference not only because of the 25 years, but only also because of the will to be different. Do you also, in that, when you move into Act One, 25 years later, do you, are you ch- consciously changing your physicality at all? Well, yes, of course, because, I mean, in, with a twin, between 40 and 65, uh, you can you can feel differences in your body. I mean, your knees are hurting. Your this and that. So, even the way the way you walk, it's yeah. I think it should be. In in that first scene of Act One, we don't think, see. Think a, a bit about your your presidents when they are elected. Think about Clinton. He was a young, sparkling man, and five years afterward. <laughs> like that. Only five years. So, I mean... <laughs> um, the next time we see you um, after the prologue, there you are 25 years later, and we, we, you have a, just a little duetino in that, that scene that you sing with the tenor, Gabriele Adorno, mm-hmm. uh, which is very beautiful. But what is it actually about? Well, he comes there, he, he wants to, to marry... Um, the girl, who is an adopted girl. Of course, I don't know that she's the one that is my real niece, but... Uh, your, your, your granddaughter. Yeah, granddaughter, yeah. yeah. She, so he wants to marry her, and I know, I have to tell him that she's not my granddaughter, she's just an adopted girl, and she's not a Grimaldi. It's not a patrician. Yeah, not a patrician. So I have to say that he, he's accepting because he loves her, and so it's just a kind of blessing to the to the to this marriage. It's a very simple and touching moment, vocally difficult, especially for the tenor, because it's all in the passaggio. But it's also what you sing in that duet just struck me when I was listening to it last night in the performance. It's just one of the most beautiful. This is the typical Verdi cantabile phrase. It's like dormir sol in, right. in King Philip Aria. It's very important to develop a, a good technique and a, and a good economy of the breath in order to give to the phrase health from A to Z. And then the famous legato will be there, and the, and the beauty, hopefully, will be there. 
the the next big scene in the opera is the council chamber scene, which actually was an addition. Verdi, Verdi revised Simon Bocanegra. It was written in eight, it was premiered in 1857 in Venice, and it was not a success. And he waited for years, and he finally revised it in 1881, and it was a radically different piece. And it was at, at La Scala. It was an absolute triumph. So there was this new scene that was part of it. So what does the council chamber scene? give to the opera that makes it so distinctive and so memorable? Well, it's very important for the, for the character of Bocanegra. Bocanegra doesn't have an aria, but he has uh, amazing duets, trios, and this big uh, central scene in the council. I mean, without that, and also in that scene, the baritone has the same kind of phrases that I had, for instance, in this little duet, or in the aria at the beginning, the prayer, this beautiful Verdi cantabile legato, and uh, it gives Boccanegra another, it becomes a real stunning character. Without that scene, it would be a bit, Shy, I don't know, a strange figure after the, all. The aria is really all about his wanting to be the peacemaker, correct? Yeah, yeah. He's because he's uh, trying to put the, the patricians together with the plebeians true, and create. True, true. No, no, but uh, Verdi, especially, Verdi loved very much baritones more than anybody else. And all the baritone roles have a very specific nobility. And even in this case where the character comes from the plebe, from the simple crowd, doesn't matter, it doesn't go together with money, nobility. It's just in your heart, in your soul, in your mind, in your brain. If you have if you have this you can be extremely noble without being count or prince. And this is what's happening to the character of Boganegra in this piece. You, you have sung, as far as I can tell, all the big Verdi bass roles. So I'm curious about the kind of singing that you do. You've talked about the legato that's required. Um, but the kind of singing that you do in this role versus what Verdi would ask of you in in Hernani, in Nabucco, these earlier pieces, does, is Fiesco quite, quite different from the, that? The, the, early, the early roles in the early operas are, are more heroic, let's say, more pushy. And, uh, and Silva, for instance, Silva is a kind of Fiesco. Fiesco this is in Hernani. Hernani, yes. Silva in Hernani is a kind of Fiesco. It starts with huge rage and hate again, this time against the tenor. <laughs> and he grows up until the very end, always with this rage and vendetta until he gets it. I like to give Silva a dignity. Also, if he sounds a bit wild and beast, Silva, after all, is the only one with a morale and with a dignity. All the others are basically traitors. Even the king, the king, the baritone is is the is the cheaper figure, I would say, because he's really a son of a, <laughs> you know what? Because he's a, he's, 
He will do whatever to, to, to have what he wants, and he's the biggest traitor. The girl is betraying him because he thinks that she should be married with, with him, but she loves the tenor. The tenor, of course, uh, is also betraying him because he's giving him, he's hiding him from the rage of the king. And then he, was his, he wants his revenge. And so Silva is the only one who has a dignity and he goes along with it until the very end. But he's missing what Fiesco has. This amazing final redemption moment that he has at the end, when he understands, first of all, the, the real identity of the granddaughter, the real dimension of the humanity of Bocanegra, and he admits his mistakes. And you have this amazing do it that gives Fiesco uh, such a greatness because he, suddenly you have a lost human being who, is a, who has the courage to admit his faults and to try to, to be close to his mortal enemy. And the way Verdi wrote this do it is is one of those pieces that we singers have the privilege to sing and to be the interpreter. But I tell you, these are one of those moments that, first of all, we sing for ourselves. They are so beautiful that we do that for ourselves, and then eventually to an audience. But it's so the privilege to be the filter of this music and of this drama is overwhelming. You told me something very interesting about this character, which, I, which had not occurred to me. Um, we move into a scene at the beginning of Act Two where Paolo says to you, why don't you kill Simone? And you refuse to do it. And what... And Simone is loathed by Fiesco, and so Fiesco as a as a as a dignity. If he has to kill somebody, should be through a legal duel, or by law, or I mean, he's not using the knife; he's using the sword. The knife is the weapon of a of a traitor, of a killer. Is not a weapon of a honorable man. And of course, for Paolo, this is normal life, but Fiesco reacts in a, in a way that is outraged and offended. And this is uh, another beautiful aspect of this character. I mean, of course, he, he, he doesn't hate anybody more than he hates Bocanegra, but this is not the way to do it. Um, we haven't said anything so far about the role of the orchestra in this piece. Are there moments that you wait for in Verdi's orchestration where there's a particular instrument that is highlighted or just the way the orchestra comments on what's happening on stage that you just, that grabs you every time? Well, there are moments, for instance, at the very beginning of the opera, the beginning of the soprano aria. If you are familiar with, uh, with Genova, and there are many places that 
squares or palaces that go straight into the sea. And in the different times of the day, you have this tide. And the music that Verdi wrote is just this, is the, the wave and going back. And it's so touching if, it's, if it is well done and if it is understood as it should be. But for me, the moment that really gives me a special emotion is this last little page after the recognition duet between Bocanegra and Amelia when the orchestra gives you really the uh, after filia this is really filling in the soul in the revised version of the opera in 1881 the man who was adapting the libretto was Arrigo Boito who was eventually the librettist of both Otello and Falstaff and we haven't talked so far about the text of Simon Bocanegra very much. So let me ask you, when you sing this role, Fiesco, are there particular phrases that you truly relish singing, not just because the music is so satisfying in itself, but because the text on its own is so eloquent as well? well the, text, the text in Bocanegra is very, is very lovely. It's wonderful, I must say. Comparison with other, the early Verdi, where basically the text is only serving a certain musical atmosphere. Here, the, the, the word is the vehicle to transfer emotions. Of course, word applied to music, but words are very important. And uh, again, uh, I go back to the, to the duet at the end, when this, when you start piango, this is... What are you saying at that point? I, uh, yes, because first he doesn't want to, to admit that he's crying. And then he said, yes, I'm crying because I see in you all the mistakes that I've done and all the bad things that I, that I really did in basically in all my life. I mean, I'm very close to the end of it. And I spent and I waste, did waste my life with an hate that brought me here to realize how wrong I was. So it's... Uh, <laughs> As Verdi libretti go, is this one of the better Verdi libretti that you think? Well, it, it, gives, you, it gives you the way of living the feelings that you should live in a proper way, let's say. It's like it will happen afterwards in, in Don Carlo, or even in, in Vespri, for instance, I love very much Vespri Siciliani. Uh, I love the character of Procida, because Procida is a... depends from which angle you look at him. If you look from the Sicilian side, he's a patriot, uh, extremely decided. If you look at him from the, from the French side, he's a terrorist. Like well, like a today terrorist. I mean, ready to sacrifice whatever for the cause, even himself. So, in the text, 
in the old Verdi, it, it helps all these situations. Before, it's just uh, there because you need to say something, let's say. We haven't said very much about Elijah Mashinsky's production, which originated in Covent Garden, mm-hmm. and we actually did it once before in 1995. What do you most enjoy about this particular vision of the piece? You know, I did, I did this production two years ago in, in Covent Garden, and we will do it again next June and July. And uh, I like it for a very simple reason. First of all, Elijah is a very charming person, very competent. He belongs to the old school of opera directors. Therefore, people with knowledge of music and opera and, and vocal necessities. So whatever problem comes out, you can discuss, you will understand the reasons, you will adjust, and we will adjust, and we will find a solution. And uh, like the good opera directors, he knows that this function is the one of creating a situation, an ambience, the space, the situation that we need, we professionals on stage, that we need to become the characters. It's extremely simple. It's, uh, in Italian we say that is this the secret of Pulcinella. It's, it's, it's the most, it's like water, to discover uh, water. I mean, it's, it's the most simple thing because we need only the right space to be able to be the character that we should be. And uh, Mozinski knows that and he does it. Um, you have in this opera, and I know in other operas of Verdi Ernani, for example, this amazing rapport on stage with Thomas Hampson. I know that you've done both Mozart and Verdi together, and I know that his respect and his affection for you really are boundless. So what do you find most enjoyable and sort of stimulating in rehearsing and performing You know, when you, when you are on stage with a, with a, a great professional what you are expecting from him is the, is the right reaction in the right moment. It's a matter of timing. To achieve a certain construction of the situation, you need to do it through reactions. And when you have next to you somebody like that, it's so natural. So it's, it's easy. It's fun. It's, it's even when you rehearse, the, the atmosphere will be so relaxed and so beautiful because you understand that you're just doing what you should do. And this is what, what happened many, many times from Covent Garden, Don Carlos, Salzburg, Bocanegra, the Mozarts with, with Tom. So it's just a game of And do you, do you play golf together as well? Yeah. <laughs> Ryder Cup. <laughs> you said something um, 
that I, I think for an interview in San Francisco that I saw online that impressed me very deeply because it was about a younger artist. Uh, you were doing Attila in San Francisco with our Ryan Opera Center alumnus, Quim, Quinn Kelsey, and you talked about his voice and artistry in a way that I just found sort of unique. That I've never seen that kind of comment about a younger artist given by someone, and so if, here you are if, performing if again. If the young with artist is like Quinn, I mean, it's the most natural thing, because uh, the first rehearsal we had in San Francisco for Attila at the end of May was a musical, musical rehearsal. So I came there, everybody was there, I never met Quinn, I didn't know what, what he was singing, and then we started the rehearsal, and... Uh, he started to sing the part of Ezio, and immediately I was astonished by a simple fact that, as you well know, after, let's say, Capuccilli and Bruzon, the real Verdi baritone color disappeared. We have many good baritones who do what they do in their way, but without the real color that you would expect. I was lucky enough to do Boccanegra and Macbeth, both with Capuccilli and Bruzon, so <clears throat> I know what, how they sounded, and it was amazing. And when I heard Kelsey singing these beautiful Verdi lines that he has in, in Ezio, I was so happy, so happy because I had the proof that we have the Verdi baritone that we thought it was missing. And the same night, I went when I went uh, home, I wrote two mails, one to the general director of the Vienna Staatsoper, and went to the artistic director of Covent Garden saying, Trust me, the real Verdi Baritone exists. Is this young man? Please remember. And the day after, they took him. Really? Yeah. In both cases. And I, I think it was absolutely deserved. But uh, it's not easy sometimes, you know. And, uh, of course, I wrote to the people that I know, with whom I have a special relationship and friendship. And I know that if I tell them something, they will at least control it. And uh, it happened. And, uh, and I'm sure that, that Quinn will, will do, it's very clever. He knows that he doesn't have to make uh, one step too much and to do is growing little by little with the right thing. He will have plenty of offers now. So he, he has the privilege to be able to make his choices, taking the, the things that he can do best at this very moment. Right. Because that's the only way to, to go on in your career, just present yourself in your best way. Were you in a situation in your early 30s where you could very easily have accepted an offer that was that would have been it happened once in Salzburg I think it was 83 
I was at the Met during, during the terrible role of Alvise in Gioconda. And, uh, and I received a phone call from uh, uh, Chailly, Ricardo Chailly, asking me if I wanted to do Banco in Macbeth the following season with the direction of Piero Fagioni in Salzburg. And he told me, Maestro Karajan, with whom I had an audition two years before, agrees and he will be happy. I mean, I was jumping around the room. <laughs> and then a very important base of the time took it over. And at the beginning I was sorry, of course, but instead of being in Salzburg in 84, summer 84 with Banco, I was in Salzburg in 86 with King Philip and Karayam himself. So I think it was a bit... It was worth waiting bit, for. Yeah, yeah. Was, There's a very important question that you will always deal with when you do a role as often as you do Fiesco, which is going from production to production with a different director every time, and how do you retain your own characterization that you believe in passionately, but at the same time give the director what he wants? And have you had to change your fiesco from production to production? Well, it happened only in those three terrible ones in Paris. <laughs> <laughs> because normally, normally, I mean, what I propose, what I am doing as fiesco is correct, is, is the way it should be. Is the way it's written, and uh, it well, <laughs> it happened for three times in a row in the same place. That uh, so you have been in situations where you truly know the opera much much better than the person who is directing you. Oh, all the times, <laughs> <laughs> all the times. <laughs> um, in conclusion, I just would like a final word from you about what you feel this opera, which is so profound, has to communicate to the public today and that will be in every way uh, in, an enlightening experience for them? Well, you know, this opera is full of amazing, an amazing humanity combined with sublime music and when you go to, to theater, especially in these times of worries, crisis, uh, nastiness and difficulties, general difficulties, you go to, you like to go to the theater and somehow recreate your spirit for, for three hours. I think that this is a very good piece where you can find this sort of achievement because it's an opera that speaks directly to your hearts and for three hours you will be able to forget all those things. And uh, I think it's, in these days it's quite important to have this moment of dream. I want to wish you in Boca Lupo and Toy 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 for all the rest of the performances. It's Thank an you. honor to speak to you about Simo Bocanegra. 
Thank you for listening to this edition of Backstage at Lyric. For more interactive content and to purchase tickets, visit lyricopera.org. <laughs>